0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Texts of Terror and the Enemies of God, What Should We Do When Religion Becomes Evil? and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday June 25th 2006. Those of us who spent time in Sunday school as kids Remember flannel graph stories about David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17. David, you'll remember, was the youngest little brother of Jesse's eight sons, relegated to Aaron boy status while his older brothers battled the Philistines as manly soldiers. Twice the writer describes David as, quote, only a boy, end quote. The narrator pictures David as, quote, ruddy and handsome, end quote hardly the traits of a warrior. When his brothers berated him when he delivered reinforcements to the front lines, he could only respond plaintively, Can't I even speak? Saul's armor was so big on him that he couldn't move. Then, of course, there was his famous slingshot that he wielded to slay the nine-foot Goliath who had, quote, defied the armies of the living God, end quote. The moral punchline about David and Goliath usually included something to the effect that God uses insignificant people and in unlikely means to accomplish improbable feats. I believe that's certainly true. But there's one horrifying detail in the story that my Sunday school teacher skipped. We read that David, quote, "...took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the scabbard." After he killed Goliath, he cut off his head with the sword, end quote. 1 Samuel 17, verse 51. David then displayed Goliath's head in Jerusalem, brandished it before King Saul, and kept his sword in his tent as a souvenir. By decapitating Goliath, David wanted to show the whole world that there is a God in Israel, All those gathered will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. When I read these scriptures for this week, my mind pinged to the decapitation of Nicholas Berg in May 2004, and of numerous other expatriates and untold numbers of Iraqi citizens who suffered similar fates. In their book, The Next Attack, Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon show how decapitation, which is still a form of capital punishment in Saudi Arabia, and the signature ear-to-ear throat-slitting by extremists are both ways to traumatize and terrorize your enemy. They are spectacles for ogling, participatory events for those who download replays of the horrific act on the Internet. The journal Technology Review from Massachusetts Institute of Technology reported that videos of the bird beheading were downloaded 15 million times, crashing many servers. But decapitation and this takes us back to David and Goliath, is also what Benjamin and Simon call a public sacrament, quote, a way of making the violence holy, an act redolent with the sense of sacrifice and the literal execution of God's law, which to the jihadist means death for infidels and apostates, end quote. Years later, as a poet and songwriter, David returned to this theme of sacred violence as proof of God's favor. In his acrostic psalm for this week, Psalm 9, where each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, he insists that his cause is righteous and that his enemies are the enemies of God. He prays for God to rebuke, destroy, blot out, annihilate, and to vanquish his enemies with what he calls, quote unquote, endless ruin. As if to erase even the least vestige of their humanity, he prays that even the memory of them will perish. He concludes his prayer in Psalm 9 with the words, Strike them with terror, O Lord. How should we read these two texts of terror, First Samuel chapter 17 about David and Goliath, and then David's psalm, chapter 9? You might dismiss the decapitation of Goliath as mere fiction or legend, but that takes the easy way out. For some reason, the Hebrews included this story, and other disturbing ones also, in their sacred canon. There are also reasonable caveats and qualifications that might mitigate the sacred horror we read about in these two chapters. Maybe, for example, we have here a case of historical description of something that happened, but but that does not mean that God approved of it. Primitive cultures back then were more barbaric than ours. Divine retribution for truly wicked people and nations is a necessary part of humanity's moral compass and calculus. War and its tragic consequences seem to be an inevitable and inscrutable aspect of the intersection of human history and divine sovereignty. Later progress in God's revelation of himself supersedes earlier stories like these. And finally, maybe poetry like Psalm 9 is just angry exaggeration or emotional overstatement. Whether ancient or modern, violence in God's name knows no boundaries. All religions have engaged in sacred terror, and include widow burning, child sacrifice, caste systems, mass suicide, female genital mutilation, witch hunts, ritual abuse, ethnic cleansing, suicide bombers, and apartheid. The list is depressingly long. Christians killed thousands in the Crusades and Inquisitions, defended slavery, were complicit in the Holocaust that killed six million Jews, ravaged the Native American peoples, and have murdered abortion doctors and gays." I'm not sure how to read the Bible's texts of terror, but here are two suggestions. Whereas the Old Testament contains violence that is divinely sanctioned, at least according to the writers, in the New Testament I can think of only two examples when the followers of Jesus wanted to use violent means for his cause when James and John wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans because of their unbelief, Luke chapter 9, and in the Garden of Gethsemane when his disciples tried to prevent his arrest, Mark chapter 14. In both of these instances, Jesus rebuked those who tried to show their allegiance to him through violent means. Instead, he insisted that his Father in heaven causes his sun to shine on both the wicked and the righteous. He told us to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us, because in the end, the ultimate measure of my love for God is my love for my neighbor. I can't recall anyone who made this point better than the German pastor Martin Niemoller, who lived from 1892 to 19. 19- 84. Niemoller protested Hitler's anti Semite measures in person to the Fuhrer. He was eventually arrested and then imprisoned for eight years at Sachsenhausen and Dachau. But once he confessed quote, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of His enemies. Anne Lamotte put it similarly when she observed that when God hates all the same people that you hate, you can be absolutely certain that you have created Him in your own image. Second, we should not remain silent when we see attempts to legitimize sacred violence, but instead we should name it for what it is. We should learn the warning signs that religion has become evil and that evil has become religious. Here are eight warning signs that religion has become evil. Number one, fanatical claims of absolute truth. I don't mean here the belief that absolute truth exists, which I think it does but I mean the doubt-free and uncritical confidence that one understands such absolute truth absolutely. Number two, blind obedience to totalitarian, charismatic, and authoritarian leaders or their views that undermines moral integrity, personal freedom, individual responsibility, and intellectual inquiry. Number three, identifying and rationalizing end-time scenarios in the name of your religion. Number four, justifying religious ends by dubious means. Number five, any and all forms of dehumanization, from openly declaring war on your enemy, demonizing those who differ from you, construing your neighbor as an other to claiming that God is on your side alone. Number six, pressure tactics of coercion, deception, and false advertisement. Number seven, alienation, isolation, and withdrawal from family, friends, and society, whether psychologically or literally. And then an eighth warning sign, exploitation in all forms of unreasonable demands upon one's time, money, resources, family, friendships, or sexuality. Often, one or more of these eight danger signs combine together. We should judge religions by their most authentic examples rather than by their worst corruptions. There is also a difference between evil committed by people who happen to be religious and evil promoted in the name of religion. I've also observed that some people overstate the connection between religion and violence, as when Charles Kimball writes that, quote, more evil has been perpetrated in the name of religion than by any any other institutional force in human history." I think that distinction probably goes to Soviet and Chinese atheism who exterminated over a hundred million people. Sometimes the connection between religion and violence is tenuous, while at other times it is explicit. Sacred terror is almost always complex and bound up with other causes that are social historical, economic, cultural, and political. But at the end of the day we must admit that there is far too much violence in the world that is fomented with a specifically religious rationale, motivation, or justification. And we should commit ourselves to do whatever we can to stop it. And now for further reflection. What has been your experience of religious violence? Number two, contemplate the powerful words of Pastor Martin Niemöller that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his own enemies. Number three, can you identify any of the eight warning signs in contemporary American Christianity. And then finally, for further reflection, see the two books. First, by Charles Kimball, entitled When Religion Becomes Evil. And secondly, Mark Jurgensmeyer, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence. For books this week, I review The Battle for Peace A Frontline Vision of America's Power and Purpose by General Tony Zinni and Tony Colts. New York, Palgrave Macmillan, 2006, 233 pages. Anthony Zinni's 40 year career in the U.S. Marines spanned from the rice paddies of Vietnam as a 22-year-old advisor to the commander of the U.S. Central Command, better known as CENTCOM, where he was just as comfortable in presidential palaces. He's accumulated a lifetime of practical experience in more than 70 countries, not only as a warrior, but as a diplomat, businessman, and university lecturer. Thus, he comes to his opinions in this book with the muddy boots of a seasoned practitioner. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 signaled a new world order of expanding political peace and economic prosperity. At least, that's what a lot of people thought. But what really followed, says Zinni, at least for those with eyes to see and the candor to admit it, was a new world disorder. Since the fall of the former Soviet Union, there have been roughly 40 wars, although almost none of them have been traditional military conflicts. Or consider this. Between 1945 and 1978, the United Nations conducted only 13 peacekeeping missions. But between 1988 and the present, that number tripled to 47. Like it or not, says Zinni, America is now an empire with unparalleled influence, whether in information technology, culture, diplomacy, economics, entertainment, or military might. No one is our equal, and no one can play our role. Yet Zinni also believes that America is unsure how to wield its power wisely and well in this new world disorder. And so he proposes in this book what he calls a new national purpose. Global peace, he insists, will not emerge out of passive neglect. It requires active intervention. Nor is it a natural state of affairs. It follows from exporting our best ideals. Zinni argues that we suffer from a failure of vision and that instead of understanding others, we project our own view of the world onto them. Many leaders look at the world today through the lens of the Cold War, where state actors engaged in military battles, and indisputable victory was determined by vanquishing the enemy. It's quite possible that we will never again fight a war like that. Rather, today global instability comes from a legion of demons, drug cartels, computer viruses, environmental degradation, failed states that descend into chaos and anarchy, currency meltdowns, natural disasters like Katrina or the Indonesian tsunami, epidemics like HIV-AIDS, ethnic rivalries, and so on. The New World Disorder requires understanding our new context with fresh vision. Related to this, we also suffer from sclerotic, stovepipe rival bureaucracies that are wedded to the old-school vision. Even the new National Director for Intelligence and the new Homeland Security are unlikely to succeed in Zinni's estimation, for they merely perpetuate past mistakes. Given all of this, I found it odd that Zinni proposes yet a new government bureaucracy which he would call a national monitoring and planning center. But if the president turns a blind eye to intelligence experts or spins intelligence to support pre existing ideology, if the Pentagon ignores the wisdom of the State Department and its military And if rival agencies continue to protect their own turf, then why should we expect his proposed National Monitoring and Planning Center to succeed? Of course, Zinni envisions that his new bureaucracy will operate differently, but why should Washington ever abandon its soda-straw view? Zinni admits that his sweeping proposal is what he calls radical, which is to say, idealistic. What Zinni has written, then, is a popular level book for a general audience, complete with a foreword by Tom Clancy and 16 photographs of himself. At times his prose meanders into generalities and bureaucraties, another oddity given that it was co-written by a professional writer. I wondered if the book was more an exercise in self-promotion than a serious proposal about complex problems where, as we all know so well, the devil is in the details. Still, The Battle for Peace is worth reading for its big picture view of our world by a person that has no political axe to grind. General Tony Zinni and Tony Colt's The Battle for Peace In film this week, I reviewed the film called Dumbland from the year 2005. Writer-director David Lynch has earned a well-deserved reputation for portraying a very dark and even surreal world with films like the 1986 Blue Velvet and then Mulholland Drive in the year 2001. He later moved on to television with the series Twin Peaks. His latest foray, Dumbland, finds him experimenting with animated film, although we should put the word film in quotation marks because it's actually film put onto the internet. The first few seconds of Dumbland advises viewers that Dumbland is a crude, stupid, violent and absurd series. If it is funny, it is funny because we see the absurdity of it all, for mature audiences only. If anything, that's an understated warning about the vulgarity and violence that follows in the eight separate three to four minute episodes. The darkness is not new for viewers familiar with Lynch, nor is the creativity or quality that great. I thought that a talented high-schooler could have made these short takes. Dumbland is important, though, because it shows the experimental direction of a major filmmaker. Lynch sat down at his iMac computer all by himself, and with a software program called Flash, he used his mouse to draw the simple black-line drawings on a, black, on a white background. He then added animation, voices, and music. Go to DavidLynch.com and, for a price of course, you can purchase his film made for the internet. It will be interesting to see how efforts like this will impact major film production and distribution, television, and even DVD rentals. Dumbland from the year 2005 by writer-director David Lynch. Finally for poetry this week we've posted a poem by Emily Dickinson who lived from 1830 to 1886. The title of her poem is number 333, The Grass So Little Has to Do. The grass so little has to do a sphere of simple green with only butterflies to brood and bees to entertain. And stir all day to pretty tunes that breezes fetch along, and hold the sunshine in its lap and bow to everything. And thread the dews all night like pearls, and make itself so fine a duchess were too common for such a noticing. And even when it dies To pass an odor so divine Like lowly spices lain to sleep Or spikenards perishing And then in sovereign barns to dwell And dream the days away The grass so little has to do I wish I were a hay. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 25th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.